Welcome to a missing persons case from a period of time with no cell phones, computers, social media, GPS, DNA, or prevalent video camera technology. It's also a case with no media involvement or known suspects. It's an active case, but it feels cold. You found justice for Jennifer missing in Nashville. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, I hope you'll check out the previous episodes, Saved by Zero, Considering the Possibilities, Looking for Answers, and The Namus Interview. Since the last episode recorded in February 2019, we've passed the 39th anniversary of Jennifer's disappearance on June 28th. The day passed as a normal day for the general public, but family and friends of Jennifer likely spent the day wondering what happened to her almost 40 years ago? Surely they wonder how the suspected foul play has gone unsolved for so long and if there are any updates or anything new about the case. Aside from what the police may know behind the scenes, family and friends would find that there is not any discernible activity such as media involvement or internet chatter discussing the case. If the case is not solved by the 40th anniversary, which is June 28, 2020, my hope is that the Jennifer community can work together to keep her memory alive and continue to develop an active and factual discussion of her case. In 1980, Jennifer was a 5-foot-3-inch, 125-pound female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was 21 years old and lived by herself at the Tanglewood Apartments on Harding Place in Nashville, Tennessee, which I'm told were fairly new and nice. Jennifer was a 1976 graduate of Overton High School, where she had been an assistant art editor for the school newspaper, which was called The Orbit. She was also a member of the Honor Society. Jennifer had later attended school at Nashville Tech and worked at Colonial Bank in Nashville. Jennifer was said to never be late or miss work. She had been engaged at one point, but not much is known about the details of the engagement, and she's said to have later dated around. By all accounts, Jennifer appears to have been a normal American woman, starting her young life after growing up in the 60s and 70s. It's assumed that she was born in Nashville, though this has not ever been confirmed in the public domain. It's also reasonable to assume that she must have played softball, though it's uncertain how many seasons she played and if any of the people that she played with knew her well or recall any memories of her leading up to the summer of 1980. The only reported trace of Jennifer that has ever been found is her Tennessee driver's license. It was found on December 11, 1980, on Blue Lake Road. Blue Lake Road is known today as Blue Lake Lane. It is located 15.5 miles southeast of Jennifer's residence and 3 miles northeast of Laverne, Tennessee. The VICAP alert states that personal property, to include Jennifer's driver's license, was found on Blue Lake Road. The way this is worded, 
leaves it open to speculation. Whether other items of Jennifer's, such as a purse or clothing, were found with a license. There is no known record or description of the clothing that Jennifer was wearing when she was last seen. The memory of colors may have faded, but someone hopefully can recall if Jennifer was last seen wearing shorts or jeans or sandals or sneakers. I'm not sure how important that could be at this point, but let's say that every detail counts and that every detail has the ability to unlock someone's memory. It is peculiar that her last known clothing was never provided to the public, as it is usually included in missing person descriptions. Jennifer's biography also includes her status as the most tenured missing adult of Nashville, Tennessee. Very few details are publicly known about the timeline of her disappearance. It is suspected that Jennifer disappeared from her home at the Tanglewood apartment complex sometime during the evening hours of June 28, 1980. Jennifer left a local softball party at a nearby apartment clubhouse and was never reported to have been seen again. Jennifer's black Trans Am was later found parked backwards in two parking spaces at her apartment. Jennifer was known to have backed her car into the space and double parked to keep it from getting scratched. It seems reasonable that she had parked the car and there hasn't been anything officially reported throughout the years to indicate that there was anything suspicious or out of the ordinary at or near the car, such as an open car door or out of place personal items found near the car. According to the FBI VICAP alert released in November of 2018, Jennifer's apartment was undisturbed and she was reported missing by her parents on June 30th after she missed church and failed to report for work on Monday morning. There's no public information available to help determine if there was any telephone activity from Jennifer's landline phone inside the apartment during the evening of June 28th. I was also told by someone that was allowed into Jennifer's apartment shortly after the disappearance that it had the appearance of being undisturbed and that her bed hadn't been slept in and there was no evidence of her changing clothes after the party. However, this individual did state that they did not go into Jennifer's bedroom. There were no strange reports of the television being left on, dinner still on the stove, or evidence of a struggle. There was one interesting item seen among the seemingly normal apartment environment. It was a torn off fingernail, which was conspicuously resting by itself on a glass coffee table. It was described to be long and appeared to have been torn or ripped off someone's finger. It's perplexing to know what to make of the solitary fingernail and why it may have been the only item considered to be out of place in Jennifer's apartment. The fingernail adds to the mystery of her disappearance. Could the torn off fingernail simply be an uncleaned up coincidence from a nervous habit or could it have been a deeper reason for it being on the coffee table during the initial discovery of Jennifer's disappearance. Did the fingernail belong to Jennifer or someone else and how easy would it be for a fingernail to be torn off in a struggle? 
DNA technology did not exist in 1980, and there would have been no way to definitively determine who the fingernail belonged to. There may have been no reason for an investigator to consider retaining the fingernail as evidence, but it could be an incredible revelation for this case if the fingernail was somehow retained as an innocent piece of evidence from 1980 with the ability to provide a DNA sample 40 years later as we approach the year 2020. I recently drove the route from Harding Place to Blue Lake Lane. As I headed away from Harding Place on the Murfreesboro Pike and up Stones River Road towards the lake, it stood out to me how isolated and rural the Blue Lake Road of 1980 must have been. Blue Lake Lane of 2019 is a small street of modern and updated houses in a relatively quiet and neat neighborhood. There are other streets and neighborhoods with houses nearby. Without having any available photographs or records to help verify this, I do think that it is possible that there wasn't much of anything there during the time period of Jennifer's disappearance. Are there any of my listeners that can help confirm this? Was Blue Lake Road of 1980 a desolate area, a hangout spot, or did people live there? I'm told that a contractor found the license, so Blue Lake Road may have been built up near the time of Jennifer's disappearance. Unfortunately, it's uncertain if the person that found Jennifer's license is still alive and his name is unknown. Vester Waldron, who is quoted in a Daily News article that I'll reference on the Facebook page, said that people said Laverne would never be anything but a wide spot in the road. Waldron was mayor from 1972 to 1980, and Waldron's comments say a great deal about the population status of the Laverne area in which the license was found. Two working theories that I've considered are that the license ended up there because either someone familiar with the rural nature of the area disposed of Jennifer's body in the area and somehow dropped the license in the process. The other idea is that this was near an isolated hangout spot where something went wrong. It's purely speculation, but perhaps it was an accident an overdose, or unwanted advances that occurred. Again, this is purely speculation. We don't know if the license was left on Blue Lake during the evening of June 28, 1980, or sometime after. But we do know that it was found there six months after Jennifer was last seen. It's an intriguing question as any as to how and when it got there. Though we've discussed the remote nature of the area, it is still puzzling to think of how the license could have been on the ground for six months before it was finally found. Could Jennifer have been alive at Blue Lake and dropped her license in a struggle before she was taken from the area? Or was she taken to the area after being killed? Of course, we don't have these answers, but this one single piece of Jennifer's which was left behind either carelessly or unwillingly along with the rural and isolated area of Blue Lake Road presents a starting point for narrowing down where Jennifer might be. It also might help someone to remember something they saw or heard 
during the last weekend of June 1980. Much time has passed, and memories are fuzzy, but I believe that those who may have inadvertently crossed paths with a shady or out-of-place character during the late evening hours of June 28, 1980, or early morning hours of June 29th, may still remember if they felt that something just wasn't quite right. A strange car in the area during late or early morning hours, or someone digging or carrying something that looked out of place, or sounds that pierced the night. Thank you to Andrea for your email. Andrea states, Hi, just listened to today's episode of the podcast, and you were questioning how missing persons sites state she was last seen at her apartment. Andrea is referring to the episode Looking for Answers, which was released in February of 2019. Andrea goes on to say, I don't have inside knowledge of the case, but I followed this case on Web Sleuth. The references to her being seen at her apartment were written before Jennifer's friend posted her account of the softball party. Therefore, I lean toward thinking that she was seen at her apartment before the party. I'm not 100% certain on this, but I think I recall her friend saying she was never questioned by the police, only by the PI. So I do think it's possible that her family didn't know she had gone to the party. Just a thought, I'm not sure about the whys, but I'm certain that many websites simply said she was last seen at her apartment before her friend posted on WebSleuths. Hope this helps somehow. Andrea brings up a great point that suggests Jennifer was last seen at her apartment before the softball party. The post which I believe she is referring to was written on WebSleuths.com by member Krabatha on May 24th 2012. Krabatha states that she was at the softball party and that Jennifer came and left by herself. According to Krabatha, nobody saw Jennifer after the party. Krabatha also stated that the police said that Jennifer's car was found with her purse and keys still in it. In an earlier episode, I had discussed how important it is to know if the purse was actually located. Krabatha had apparently known Jennifer since the fifth grade, saw Jennifer at the party, and has some memory of the disappearance aftermath. Some of the Web Sleuth's threads are useful information, and it's a great forum uh, to review the community's thoughts about Jennifer's disappearance. Maybe the best thing about the Web Sleuth's forum is that it proves that there are people out there that want to see this case solved. And some of them have been waiting a long time. It's easy to believe that Jennifer's disappearance is a forgotten cold case, but forums like WebSleuths and this podcast will help bring facts to light and push this case closer to being solved. The Justice for Jennifer podcast has a Facebook and Twitter page. Be sure to check them out. Tweet, like, and share. The podcast including earlier episodes, is available on most podcast platforms. If you like the podcast, be sure to give it a five-star rating and stay tuned for future episodes about serial killers in Nashville and the early investigation of Jennifer's disappearance. 
If you have any information about the disappearance of Jennifer Wyatt that could help to solve this case, you can help by contacting the Metropolitan Nashville Police Department at 615-862-8600. Or you can call Nashville Crime Stoppers at 615-742-7463. And you can remain anonymous. A copy of the VICAP alert is available on the Facebook page, along with a link to Jennifer's NamUs and Metropolitan Nashville Police missing profile page. If you knew Jennifer or have comments about the case, the podcast can be reached at j4jpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, take care and remember, no one deserves to disappear.